an interview with the Heritage Foundation's Amy Swearer, and a look at Alec Baldwin's claim he didn't pull the trigger. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can get yourself a membership today if you want exclusive access to dozens of original reports and analysis pieces and this podcast a day early. There's wonderful benefits to being a member, so head over there, check out what deal we have going on today and support this operation. This is 100% reader funded. It's an independent publication. We do not take any money from anyone other than our funders, who are you, the readers. So if you want to support what we're doing, if you want to see more independent, informed firearms reporting, that's the way to do it. Today, I have Amy Swearer of the Heritage Foundation on the show. It's nice to meet you, Amy, here virtually on in our little studio. Can you tell the folks listening who you are and a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edmise Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Um, so in some respects, I am a policy wonk. But for purposes of this show, I am a policy wonk who looks at you know what is good Second Amendment policy uh, and how do we understand as conservatives, as people who um, appreciate that the Second Amendment has an, an actual meaning and is an actual fundamental right. And how do we analyze that? How do we go about, um, you know, for, from a conservative perspective, looking at good gun policy while still um, you know, respecting the Second Amendment uh, as, as it is meant to be respected. Um, so sure. I, it, a lot of studying violence, uh, studying violence prevention, studying mental health uh, and its role in gun violence and violence prevention. Um, so, yeah, there, there is certainly no, no lack of things to talk about in, in the, the gun violence world. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to get into a bunch of that here today. But you've also testified uh, before legislative bodies on laws that they're considering. You've been uh, on TV a number of times talking mm -hmm. about gun policy as well. Uh, you're one of the top conservative policy analysts uh, on the Second Amendment that's out there. So we really appreciate you coming on. Give us some of your time today to to hear your take on some of the, the latest things that are in the news. Um, and I think I got your name right, I think. I just swear. Nailed it. We've known each other for a while. Nailed it. But but I also know Adam Serwer, and I had him on the podcast a little while back. So, I, 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 you know, I, I want to make sure that I pronounce everyone's name properly. Because sometimes there's people who it's similar, but it's not the same. And because as somebody with the last name Gutowski, uh, I understand how important. How many, how many times do you get confused for the uh, former Patriots kicker? All the time, uh, including during the Super Bowl, uh, especially because he's not on Twitter mm. and I'm verified on Twitter. And we're both both have Polish last names that are sort of similar to each other. So and the same first name. So everyone just assumes go. I'm a Hall of Fame level NFL kicker. In fact, I've had a number of NFL players follow me. And I'm never quite sure if they follow me because they are interested <laughs> in gun policy and news, which is something a lot of NFL players are into, 
Uh, or if they think I'm uh, the, the kicker, <laughs> Stephen Gostowski. Or they think that Gostkowski is all of a sudden now a Second Amendment yeah, uh, a big journalist. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> could be. Because uh, I had Hall of Fame kickers follow me. And them, I, was, I assume, I forget which one it was, but I assume he thought I was Gostowski. So it's always fun. Names are fun. Uh, I actually... I oh actually I have it right here. Uh, for anyone watching on YouTube, there's a book called uh, "High Treason" by John Gilstrap. This is kind of like a Jack Reacher. Um, who's the the one that Alec Baldwin and played? Uh, I didn't know there'd be a movie trivia component to this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy's. Oh, famous. Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. Yeah. So th this is kind of this book. High treason is, is got a guy like that. It's about that same. It's that same sort of idea. And I, I'm in here as a character in this book. Uh, and I found this out one day by googling my name. And I came up. This is, <gasps> this is from like the early twenty two thousands. And I, like I, ca I came across a passage of my name in Google Books. Amazing. Uh, which you can Google has like you can search printed books too. It's pretty cool. But but yeah, and I'm being tortured to death oh. in the book. So oh it's wow. Not, there's a whole piece over at the Free Beacon from a couple of years back on the on this doppelganger name problem. So anyway, on to the thing <laughs> people came here to listen to, not my crazy uh, existential crises from old books that I'm a character in. <laughs> we had just recently a ruling out of the Ninth Circuit in regards to California's 10 rounds limit on magazines it's actually not just a sales ban but a, a total ban on possession mm -hmm. yes it's a confiscation law and that was upheld by the ninth circuit and somewhat unsurprising turn of events because they kind of uphold every gun yeah. i was actually thinking first. about this I, i'm not aware I, I cannot think of a time at least in recent memory but probably ever that they have thought that a state went too far um, mm. I, you know, I, I'm not sure they've ever actually struck down a gun law. I don't think at the on banc level now, right, right. At least not in recent history. And so I think we'll talk a little bit more about that case in detail on the news update with contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, and, uh, hopefully the construction next door in my apartment will be done by then. And you won't, have, <laughs> no one will hear the banging going on behind me, but I wanted to just get into a little bit more of the policy yeah. side of this, uh, the justification used for these laws, for why they're presumptively constitutional in this case. Right. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the argument that's put forward about them, that essentially they do not burden the Second Amendment, that they are uh, restrictions on effectively weapons of war, guns that are designed for the battlefield. Right. What what is your take on that? Is this something you hear a lot, right? Right. You know, and, and this is what's interesting sort of with this more progressive, um, less sort of text history tradition centered uh, approach to law is that it, it really becomes this policy interest balancing test, um, which, you know, when, when you read Heller and McDonald explicitly says interest balancing is is not appropriate for dealing with fundamental rights. Um, and nevertheless, that's sort of what we get. You know, and I'll skip over sort of the, the legal aspect that, you know, you, you cover in, in your news section. Um, but it is important that, you know, what ends up happening when you go through this is you are essentially reading the majority, uh, you know, introducing 
policy and balancing this policy in order to say that it's constitutional because it's you know reasonably it, it's a, essentially a reasonably good fit for this government interest of reducing gun violence. Um, and so, like you said, they they go through sort of point by point. You know, I think there are basically four main points with this that they make. And if they sound sort of like your your standard gun control esque talking points, it's because it's largely what they are. Um, so, you know, first you, you have this general, you know, oh, well, it doesn't outlaw weapons. It's only the size of the magazine. So it's not this massive infringement. You know, it's not like they're banning handguns like in Heller. Um, and then they go into this idea that there's there's no evidence that anyone has ever been unable to defend their, their homes or their families due to lack of having what, and I hate this term, large capacity magazine call them standard capacity magazines. Right, um, because most guns now come with magazines equipped with more than 10 rounds. Even right. your single stack carry gun these days will come with magazines yeah. that hold more than 10 rounds and those guns are are tiny. And I'd say ar arguably the ones that don't, it's because gun manufacturers know that they have to deal with certain states, you know, like California and the District of Columbia and, and New York that and New Jersey that will sort of limit them in that way. So that you know they're there is a forced market for it, um, but they are just pretty standard magazine capacities. Um, and so this idea being, well, it's it's not a it's not a significant burden on the right to defend yourself, uh, you know, in your home or elsewhere. Um, and then on the flip side, what they'll say is, but at the same time, this limitation uh, is important because it saves lives in you know in this case and generally they specifically point to in mass shootings. Um, and so therefore it, uh, and I'm quoting here, reasonably supports the state's effort to reduce the devastating damage wrought by mass shootings. Um, and I hope we get into that because that's, you know, as someone who studies mass shootings for a living, um, it, it is, that is an insane statement, um, you know, to, to say that, well, the justification is this is what's going to really save lives in the, in the long term. And underlying all of this uh, is, is a thread of argument that you brought up, is that these sorts of magazines, um, you know, over 10 rounds, they have this limited civilian function, they don't really benefit civilians, and that they're actually just weapons of war. And this is what the court says here, is that they are most useful in military service and trying to compare them to M16s, which, you know, gets you into some dicta language in Heller about how, you know, maybe those aren't protected. Um, but, but that's sort of this underlying threat is, like, well, the civilians don't really need them. The military does. Uh, and so therefore, you know, well, who, of, of course you can regulate them. Of course you can ban their possession for normal, you know, ordinary standard civilians because um, they're weapons of war. Um, yeah. yeah, of it, course, there's there's a serious, uh, I guess, caveat in right. this long California and in most of these laws on regulating magazine size and AR-15s and AK-47s and right. similar firearms, which is that they, they don't outlaw them for police. They, they make exceptions for police. And in fact, even p police who aren't on right. duty or even police who aren't service, serving anyone. Right. So there sort of leads this question as to why, yeah. if the argument is that you don't uh, need these firearms outside of a battlefield, why in the world they would want the police to have them. Isn't that a common critique of right. policing in America today that it's too Yeah, you know, it's and it's it is funny uh that that those are the, the same arguments being put forward by 
people on the political spectrum who tend to also be in favor of demilitarizing the police. Um, but you're right. You know, th this is not unique to California. This is actually, as far as I'm aware, an, an exception that it has been made in all of the eight or nine states that have you know done similar uh, types of bans. Um, you know, including I think Colorado now is at 15, uh, 15 mm -hmm. capacity, at least for new purchases. Yeah. And I'm fairly certain they exempt law enforcement as well. That you're right. For it's now, not, they, they usually start at 15 and then they right. lower to 10. New Jersey and California have both done that. Right. That it's, it's not just you know, law enforcement officers on duty, which that in and of itself, I, I mean, the, the idea there that, you know, it, that these are not peace officers operating in a civilian context, your law enforcement officers on duty are not showing up to battle in military service, right? They are showing up to the exact same types of civilian threats that the rest of us faced in the first place, which is why we called them, you know, to come and deal with this. They're, they're dealing with those same types of civilian threats. Um, you know, so, so even just limiting it to while they're on duty, you know, it sort of raises the question of, well, aren't you then essentially assuming that there is a legitimate civilian defensive function for this? Um, but then you're right. They take it a step further and say, yeah, well, current officers in their civilian capacity can can keep them as well as former law enforcement officers um, who are entirely in their civilian capacity now. Um, you know, and, and what I tend to see is this argument. Um, so you, you saw it both in this uh, opinion out of the Ninth Circuit. And you, you see it all the time, just generally in the gun control argument is, well, but you see these officers, they're well trained in using these weapons, which I'd argue sometimes is not the case. Um, but also we're not, you know, that the underlying argument here is, has never been about, well, you need more training to have these. It's no, these are weapons of war. And if they're weapons of war, it doesn't matter whether you're well trained. Why do civilians have them? Um, you know, so it's just sort of this mix and match of, of arguments, um, you know, and, and the fact that these exceptions exist just sort of belies that argument um, and, and undercuts all of, you know, any sort of legitimacy that argument might have had because you're giving them to officers in a civilian context, um, as well as, you know, former officers who are entirely now in a civilian context. Um, I, I mean, if PAC, if this is about true threats, right, that this this idea of the likelihood of a person possessing that magazine, using it in an unlawful way. Uh, I mean, it is objectively true when you look at the studies that concealed carry permit holders are statistically less likely to commit violent crimes than police officers, right? If, if that's what it's about, the likelihood of committing crimes, then you should exempt, you know, concealed carry weapons permit holders before you exempt cops. Like, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but alas, this is sort of what it has come down to from a an interest balancing policy perspective. Sure. Now, you also often hear the argument from those who want to restrict magazine size that there have been studies that indicate the rise as the, the use of larger capacity magazines correlates with uh more deadly shootings. And, and they often will point to as well, a study that indicates um, the assault weapons ban of the 1994 through 2000, mm -hmm. the federal ban coincided with a reduced number of mass shootings overall. 
in the United States. Do you, sure. do you find any validity in these arguments or what's your response to them? Well, I mean, first of all, if you want to talk about studies on the actual assault weapons ban, the government funded official study looking at that ban that from 1994 to, uh, you know, when it, the, the sunset clause came into effect, in, I think 2004, um, the actual official study looked at that and said, yeah, they, there is no legitimate way of arguing that that this drop in violence had anything to do with the assault weapons ban. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? Like this drop in violence that we saw in the 1990s happened across the globe in almost every developed country. Um, you know, and it, when, when you actually look at what that official study said, um, it's that there's no way to attribute that to this policy. And that if we literally at one point, if we were to put it back into effect, you know, it, it would be a very minimal effect, if any, um, because they're rarely used in crimes, uh, assault weapons specifically. But even with you know, these, again, quote, quote unquote, large capacity magazines, um, it, it just is not it's not the thing driving violence. Um, you know, and, and again, so you see this in the Ninth Circuit opinion where they bring this up and they they reference um, several studies. And it's it's interesting to me how they word it. But what they'll say is, well, in the 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 majority of these cases of, of mass shootings, mass shooters use these types of magazines. It's like that's like saying in most car crashes, you know, you're using a four door sedan. Well, yeah, because it's the most common thing out there. You know, they're, they're buying the gun and using the magazine that came with the gun. The question is whether. That magazine, as opposed to just having multiple 10 round magazines, made a difference overall in, you know, the, the deadly effect of those shootings. Um, you know, and again, as, as someone who studies this for a living, it's just not the case. Um, you know, the, the reality of mass shootings is, is this. First of all, mass shootings themselves account for a fraction of a percent of all gun violence. We're talking about a very, very small part of the overall problem. Most gun deaths are suicides. When you're talking about suicide, magazine capacity is irrelevant. Um, you know, unless you're limiting it down to one bullet, in which case, you know, that that's still going to be largely irrelevant. Um, you know, so you're limiting it to this this small percentage of the problem, and then you're not understanding the reality of how mass shootings uh, work in practice. Um, so I think there, there's four, it's three things to keep in mind when you're talking about mass shootings, right? So first, you're dealing with an individual who is um, usually averaging about five to eight minutes uh, of just essentially free time. Um, you know, again, this is sort of grotesque to think about, but five to eight minutes before they're confronted by someone who is going to forcibly make them stop. Um, that's a whole lot of time that they're working with when we're talking about three to four seconds to, to change magazines. Um, so second, and there have been studies on this, uh, they're not typically firing at rates where magazine capacity matters. Um, so a lot of times they're moving from room to room. Uh, they're unconfronted by people. They're, they're in a situation um, where they're not already firing during those several seconds you know, where, they're, where they're moving from one target to the next. Um, and it's time in which they can interchange those magazines. And it's not really affecting the overall state of the violence. Um, and then third, uh, and I think this gets lost a lot in this, is these are individuals who overwhelmingly bring multiple guns to the situation. Um, you know, they, they have multiple guns with multiple loaded magazines and far more ammunition than they're ever likely to use. Um, where it, when you look at, for example, um, 
there's a really famous study um, that looked at the Virginia Tech shooting. Um, this is the, the official sort of investigation into Virginia Tech, which, if you recall, the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. Um, I think 30 plus individuals lost their lives. That shooter used two handguns. Uh, and the study looked at this and said specifically this question of did magazine capacity matter? They looked at this and said, no, this is an individual. He had multiple guns in a scenario with so many extra loaded magazines. Nothing was going to affect. He just is not firing fast enough. He's, it's not a scenario where he is being actively confronted, you know, in that two or three seconds where someone is going to stop him uh, in, in most of those scenarios. Um, and it just does not make, a, 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 even where it would make a difference, right? It's We're talking about a, a minuscule difference of the smallest part of gun violence. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard for me from a policy perspective, seeing this put into, well, this is the reason we're ignoring a fundamental right, is this off chance, this very small chance that in this small percentage of gun violence, it might possibly make a difference. Um, that's not how good policy works. It's certainly not how good constitutional law works. Uh, and so it's, right. it's frustrating. I think those are all very salient points on this. I've always thought there, there is more support for the idea that uh, larger capacity magazines may have some impact on the shooting, but it, it always seemed to me yeah. that the issue was what do you define as a large capacity magazine? If you're just right. defining everything as a large capacity magazine, which is kind of what you're doing with 10 or more rounds or, you know, anything over right. 10 rounds is high capacity. Like that's kind of almost everything. So, so yeah, uh, that, that seems like a definitional problem there. And then there are situations, you know, you have seen situations in mass shootings, like with Gabby Giffords, where right. someone be reloading during, the attack right. made them vulnerable to other people intervening. But I think, like, as you said, you're, you're talking about like a one in a million chance. And the idea is that we should restrict all everyone's. This would be, I mean, for magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, there's probably hundreds of, there's probably yeah. billions. I get like if you think about it, there's 400 million guns at least in the country. Most of them are capable of accepting magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Come standard with magazines that hold mm -hmm. more than 10 rounds, and most of them have multiple magazines. So you're you're multiplying the number of guns by however many magazines you think is an average, and if you're getting a huge number on the off chance that maybe that forces someone to stop to reload right. and then someone else can intervene in that, that's that like couple of seconds. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty far fetched well, and then, idea generally you, as policy. You, know? you have, you have the flip side too, right? Which is, you know, to, to whatever extent it is interfering with a potential mass shooter's ability to you know, kill a, a couple extra people in, in that couple of minutes, you then also have to look at this from the flip side of, well, what about what's at stake for a law-abiding civilian? Because um, I also study defensive gun use, as I'm sure you're aware, with the, the defensive gun use database that Heritage has. Um, now, first of all, I mean, there's there's not a lot of good data on this flip side um, in, in terms of you know number of rounds fired and civilian encounters, because um, it's, it's just not reported a lot. Like, it's not easily accessible public information. 
Um, but I, I think it's it's reasonable to assume, like we know that in most defensive gun use encounters, that the gun isn't even being fired, much less 10 times. Um, so I, I, think, you look, it, I think it's fair to say it's statistically pretty rare that more than 10 rounds is needed. Um, but when it's necessary, oh God, is it necessary? Um, you know, it, it tends to be in these cases where that civilian, that law-abiding individual with his you know, gun is, is outnumbered. Uh, he's outgunned and he is under immediate threat throughout the duration uh, of this time when he would have to take those couple of seconds to reload, um, which is a very different context, you know, from a mass shooter who has, you know, all the time in the world to, to you know, and isn't firing and isn't under this sort of confrontational approach from law enforcement um, or from, you know, an, an active threat to his, his shooting. Um, you know, and, and then you even have to look at, well, what about the threat of being able to use 30 rounds of, of force as a deterrent? Um, you know, like, like during riots, we, we saw this, uh, we saw this in Kenosha, we saw this in um, Ferguson, we saw this, you know, you think about like the, the rooftop Koreans of the LA riots, um, you know, th this threat of, well, I can take on this crowd if necessary is also a pretty decent deterrent. Um, so it's, it's not just this vacuum of, well, does this really even matter in a gun violence prevention standpoint? Um, and it's not even just, does that matter for purposes of constitutional law? It's also then this counterbalance of, look, it, it's not just that it's equally important on the other side for the law-abiding civilian. I'd, I'd argue it's in a context where it's more important that in those rare scenarios where that amount of, you know, more than 10 rounds is needed, it's really important. Um, which, again, is why we make exceptions for law enforcement in all of these states, because when it's right. needed, it is really needed. Right. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. But speaking of policy, by the way, I want to turn real quick here sure. to the White House's latest release on gun policy. They put out uh, a fact sheet on some of the initiatives that they're they're planning now. And interestingly, it's something that you actually find useful or find yeah. that you could support, right? Which has not been right. the case with most of what the White House has done to this point, most of what President Biden right. has put forth. Can you give us a little bit of detail on what what the new initiatives are and why there's something that you find could be actually effective? Sure. Yeah. So if you haven't heard of this new initiative, you're not alone because it, you know, it seems to me like the, the White House sort of went out of its way to, to not promote it um, in ways that they have other sort of gun violence prevention initiatives. Um, so this one uh, that they, they came out with early in, in November uh, is really focused on suicide prevention. Um, they, you know, there, there are several sorts of sub points to this. Um, but, you know, this is something where right off the bat, when you're, you know, we, we just talked about this, suicides are two thirds of, of gun deaths every year. It's, it is a major, major aspect of gun violence. Um, you know, so so approaching it from that starting point already off the bat, you know, much better starting point than than some of these these other initiatives, you know, like, like how do how do we you know, take away pistol braces? Um, so that sort of thing. Um, what was encouraging to me is, is that it's actually couched in in a, in a very helpful way. You know, I think a lot of times when people talk about gun suicide from a gun control perspective, um, you know, you walk away with a sense of they think the gun in and of itself is dangerous instead of this idea of, well, look, when someone who 
is not in a healthy, stable state of mind, when someone is in a time of crisis, it doesn't matter whether it's it's a gun or any other lethal means. You know, we're talking about reducing access to all lethal means, including firearms uh, in that point. And, and I think they did a good job of sort of approaching it from that perspective. Um, so anyway, so the, the first main component of this is um, what they refer to as a comprehensive military and veteran suicide prevention strategy, um, which is is great. Uh, it seems to be focused a lot on educating the, the public and educating doctors, you know, how to talk about, um, frankly, something that we as gun owners always should be concerned with, which is, you know, lethal means safety, um, having sort of a crisis response plan for when you or someone in your household or, you know, someone that you care about starts showing signs of being in crisis, you know, what is, what is your plan? As gun owners, we, we plan for, you know, every sort of threat under the sun. And I think it's also good to talk about how do we plan for mental health contingencies. Um, you know, so, so that sort of crisis response education, um, specifically for, for veterans, um, there's, yeah, I'm that, that part is right. Largely wonderful. unobjectionable, right? Right. Uh, well, I think it also comes down to, um, we'll go over some of the other things in there too, but, uh, coer coercion, right? I guess the right. aspect of force here, th these are all policies that they put forth that aren't trying to force people to not buy a gun that the president doesn't like right. or, you know, force them to uh, even give up a gun or a magazine that that the president doesn't approve of. Right. These are all more voluntary measures that are designed to encourage people to more safely store their firearms right. or or even just like Give educate them, them on options, right? So, so yeah. one of these is is trying to come up with. Um, I think they refer to them as storage maps, um, but basically resources for individuals who are in crisis. You know, to to say, hey, hey, here's where you can safely store your firearms in in your area, which is is great. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like th those sorts of things. You know, th this idea of engaging the gun community um, and and helping. Uh, helping that community um, sort of engage with itself in a healthy way. Um, you're right. Instead of this, this very top down, um, <laughs> frankly, uh, over criminalization of some of these aspects, you know, lock, lock it up or else, you yeah, know, or we'll, else you we'll, get locked. Right. Up. Right. Um, so I think it's just a much more helpful starting place for sure. Yeah. Cause it's always interesting where you see agreement between even gun control activists and gun owners can be in this aspect of how, how do we help people who are having mental health emergencies that shouldn't be around their firearms or should be able to take a break from being around their firearms when they're going through something right. like that. And the, the different approach tends to be that the gun control advocates would want to force them to lock up their guns at, all, all the time when they're not actively right. using them, right? Under pain of arrest, right? Which is going to oftentimes turn people away from seeking help at all in situation. That's, that's the downside of that. Right. Uh, and whereas on the other side, you have gun owners or gun rights activists who want to take a more voluntary approach where say something like, and you testified to this, uh, mm -hmm. I believe before Congress, right? Where, you know, if I if I'm having a mental health crisis and I need someone else to hold my guns for me during that time, don't period, get in my way with extra laws. 
Yeah, you know? because uh, some of these universal background check laws don't just require a background check on sales, but on all transfers. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, that's that would be a transfer, which would mean you'd have to go through a background check. You'd have to take the guns to a, a dealer, essentially, an intermediary. Yeah, essentially legally that transfer that title to another person. Uh, so it seems like there's two different approaches yeah. here, oftentimes with uh, coercion versus making it as easy as possible for people to uh, give up their guns for a temporary period of time while they get, seek help for their mental health yeah, issues. Or, or even just to feel like like they can go, you know, ask for help without the first response being, well, now we're going to inform, you know, we're going to narc on you to the yeah, government right. and punish you for it. Um, and But this seems like perhaps a, a more of a middle ground right. here approach from the, the administration, which is interesting to see, especially after, as you alluded to earlier, some of the other initiatives right. that they've undertaken thus far, which are, are much more coercive, <laughs> that trying to re redefine what a pistol brace is right. so that it becomes illegal to possess, essentially, or trying to redefine the very defi definition of what a firearm is yeah. so that the ATF can have more power to regulate homemade firearms. So, you know, those approaches both are obviously very coercive and controversial, whereas this approach is much more collaborative and voluntary and right. is not getting, as you alluded to earlier, is not getting much attention to this point. And it doesn't seem like the administration is putting to very much effort behind promoting right it for some well, well because it's it's not like the, the sexy part of gun control right like it's right. it's not the platform that he ran on um you know and, and i don't want to get like like too glowing over this because there, there are aspects of it that you know uh, for example um there one aspect is that the the department of justice finalizing a rule that apparently has been in the works since 2016 um and that they they don't actually you know tell you what the wording of this potential rule is um, but finalizing a rule, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here, clarifying firearms dealers' statutory obligations to make available for purchase compatible secure gun storage or gun safety devices, um, right. which, you know, if this is some sort of, as as the DOJ has done under this administration very recently, some sort of, you know, we are rewriting the law as it exists uh, to now force gun stores to act in certain ways or do or not do certain things that are outside the confines of, you know, what Congress has said, um, you know, to just to, to put this extra burden on them, I, you know, less, less great. Um, you know, more more right. coercive, less great. Um, but again, there's it's, still it's, stuff right, to watch. Right. For, for, for sure. That. I believe if I if I remember hearing correctly about this from a dealer a couple of years ago, that dealt with what standard the gun safes that they sell in stores right. would have to meet. And so there could be some controversy around that if they set right. that standard to some level that's not reasonable. Yeah, um, but but they they do it. I, I think it's something to watch for sure. Yeah. But it seems like the thrust of this, right? Because the next uh, thing they do is then then is, pivot to essentially customer education. Um, you know, this mm -hmm. issuing of best practices for federal firearms dealers. Um, you know about uh, you know essentially how to how to encourage and uh, inform and you know talk to their customers about um, you know safe storage uh, about. Um, you know, sort of mental health options, um, which, you know, again, it, it's this fine line between wanting to force FFLs to essentially act as 
you know, mandatory educators uh, and sort of encouraging them to take reasonable steps uh, to, to promote these sorts of, of practices. Um, you know, so, you know, th those things are good. It is good when you have especially first time gun buyers who, um, you know, are, are receiving or at least, you know, have the ability to to receive educational materials about aspects of gun ownership they may not have thought about. Um, you know, though, though I'd also say we as the gun community should be encouraging this sort of training and, and education, uh, regardless of you know, whether the, the federal government says we ought to. Um, right. But it, but it's still always good. Like, like that is, again, just a better starting point, um, you know, working to to educate people on like actual best practices than saying, you know, that this this coercive approach of, you know, we're going to go full on like like some, you know, countries in Europe where we are going to you know, threaten to send people to your home to investigate whether or not it's properly locked up with these surprise visits, like which is what you hear some people now going to. It's like, oh, well, that that's how we should enforce these laws. Right. I think that that all makes a lot of sense. Uh, but uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. I think you, you had a lot of really interesting stuff to say. I think people are going to enjoy listening to this episode for sure. Um, and hopefully we can have you on again real soon in the future to talk more more policy stuff, because I, I always really enjoy the policy stuff. I think the people who listen to this to this podcast are probably a lot like me in that regard. So. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you on again here in, in the near future, if that's all right. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it. That'd be great. Thank you so much for Wonderful. having me. Yep. We're going to head over to the, the news update now, where we're actually going to talk a little bit more in depth about that Ninth Circuit ruling, and as well as Alec Baldwin's claim that he did not pull the trigger on the set of rust. So that'll be an interesting one to talk about, I think. Okay, I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman, and we're going to do the news update now. Uh, that's a new format where we do the interview first and the news update second. Uh, I think people liked that last week, so we're going to keep rolling with it. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, there's no interruption from my <laughs> next door apartment where they are, I guess, renovating things. Uh, Jake says he can't hear them, so hopefully none of you <laughs> can hear them either. <laughs> but, uh, boy, fun. Yeah. Great timing. Fun times yeah. working from home. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, Steve, I think you broke a, a really big story that's going crazy right now on the site. Uh, there's a big development in the Alec Baldwin saga. If you want to tell us about, you know, what happened. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, I didn't I didn't break it. Obviously, this, sure. this is right. ABC News did an interview with him, but I did a piece analyzing what he said because he made a very big claim during that interview, which hasn't actually as of the time of this filming, the full thing hasn't come out yet. But. ABC's put out some relevant clips and Frank, they did it in kind of a, this is a side note, but they, they did the, it's like a trailer for right. a movie and I find it fairly distasteful the way that they, yeah, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I guess this is a thing in, in TV news, right? Where you're, you're trying to play up your big interview, but this is an interview over somebody right. being killed on, on a set. It's weird to have the music and the, have it done in, in like a movie trailer sure. fashion. But anyway, <clears throat> the important bit is that he claimed to never have pulled the trigger on the gun that fired the fatal shot, which is a big claim, right? And I think to most people who own and operate modern firearms, sounds absurd and can usually this kind of claim can be dismissed out of hand, right? Uh, people make this claim a lot. The gun just went off right. on its own. and. 
with modern firearms or even modern replicas of antique firearms, this is generally not possible without some sort of serious malfunction, some sort of serious defect in the gun's design. And <clears throat> so it, it's extremely rare for something like that to happen. It's not impossible. Even with modern firearms, mechanical safeties right. can fail. This is something you teach when you're going through uh, gun safety, right. of course, right? That you shouldn't be relying on manual safeties, right? I mean, does that, in your experience, has that been what you've been sure. taught? Yeah, yeah. The most important uh, safety, they say, is your, your finger. Keep it off the trigger. Don't point it at anyone. Uh, we've seen companies like SIG have problems with their internal safeties failing where they're not drop safe. So obviously right. things can fail. Yeah. And so I think to a modern gun owner, this claim sounds completely absurd on its face. But as I wrote on the site, it's not as crazy as it sounds at, at first glance, because <clears throat> apparently in this this movie, right, it's about it's a Wild West movie. So they're using antique firearms. Now, they're, the police have said that Baldwin was using a modern replica of an antique firearm. And many of those, <clears throat> excuse me, have, <clears throat> sorry, many of those have modern safety devices inserted into them. Uh, generally, they'll have something called a transfer bar or a hammer block. Uh, the single action revolver that I own is one that comes equipped with a, a hammer block which is just a, basically a, a piece of metal that keeps the hammer from going all the way down uh, unless you flip it into the fire position. But there's also transfer bars, which are more common, uh, which have the same effect of making it so the gun can't fire unless the trigger is actually pulled. But on the old style firing mechanism, which you can still get in modern replicas of single action revolvers, They don't have that safety sure. mechanism. You can get them without it. And that's a popular way to do it because, frankly, it's perfectly possible to operate a single action revolver safely without a transfer bar or a hammer block if you know what you're doing and you follow the proper guidelines for handling a gun sure. like that. You have to know what you're dealing with, though. And so the the bottom line is that those guns with that old style firing mechanism can fire without the trigger being pulled. It's not a common thing, but it is possible. Right. Right. And my understanding, though, that when that happens, it's usually a result of something striking the back of the revolver, either forcing the hammer down or, as you, I think you noted in your piece, sometimes the firing pin is exposed on those old revolvers. So any sort of impact can cause that to discharge. So if Baldwin's claim is correct, what could, you know, what could possibly have been the, the scenario here where this would have uh, had a negligent discharge without a pull of the trigger? Well, you, you explained it pretty well there. It, generally, the way this works on an old single action revolver, when the hammer is all the way down, so it's not cocked and ready to fire, when it's all the way down, the firing pin protrudes in into the uh, chamber of the gun and if you jolt it hard enough, if you knock it hard enough, they say you drop it or you're maybe a cowboy riding around on sure. your horse and you're jolting that gun a lot, 
that firing pin can strike the primer of a live round and set it off if you generate enough force. And this is why they developed what's called the cowboy load for single action revolvers. This is why people will tell you if you're carrying around a single action revolver, not that that's a common thing to do anymore, but if you were to do it, they tell you to leave the chamber under the hammer empty because that's the safe way to carry a single action army, the single action revolver that doesn't have those safety mechanisms because then you avoid the possibility of the firing pin coming into contact with that primer and setting off around. So that's how it can happen. And it doesn't take that much force. And there's, there's a video on my piece of uh, people want to see an example of this happening. Hickok 45 is a very popular gun YouTuber, right? He, he show, he has a great video that explains this whole thing and shows exactly how much force or, at least to, to some degree, how much force it requires for, for this to occur. And it's probably less than you might expect. It's not nothing, right. though, of course. And generally this happens, you'd expect this kind of misfire to happen with the gun pointed down at the ground or, you know, when, you, when you're actually jolting sure. the gun, you're, you're creating some sort of, of force against the hammer that acts on the, the primer, that causes the firing pin to act on the primer. And so it is hard to imagine a scenario, I think, in my mind, where drawing the gun from a holster and causes this sort of misfire to right. happen, even when you've irresponsibly and negligently loaded a live round underneath that decoyed right. hammer. Even in that scenario, it's, it seems unlikely that simply drawing the gun would set off right. around in that way. It's possible, I suppose, but not yeah. like, I guess that, I think that's, that's where, that's I, where I was a little confused. There's just so many things in the causal chain there of what could happen or yet maybe there was a mechanical failure, but the gun was still pointed at someone. So I don't understand exactly what the mechanism was that caused that neg- negligent firing. If the gun was already in a, a firing position pointed at someone. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I could, it would make more sense if it fired at the right, ground when right. he was drawing it, because then, like, the sudden sure. force of drawing the gun, uh, if you if you did it hard enough, maybe that could uh, result in a misfire. But while it's pointed at someone, when it's when it's up, pointed at someone, how do you get that force to the back side of the gun that it causes the the firing pin to strike the the primer with enough force to right. set it off? I don't know. I mean, maybe he. You know, maybe he's uh, acting out the, you know, fanning sure. action, Fair. cocking yeah. a hammer, but maybe, and somehow in there he ju- he smacks the back of the gun accidentally, and that sets it off. These are possibilities, right? I don't think they're likely. I think it's more likely he just pulled the trigger, uh, maybe brushed the trigger without realizing it. Single action triggers are very right. sensitive. Uh, they're that's one of the reasons people like them, frankly. And so it's much more likely in my mind that he just pulled the trigger in this scenario rather than a, a hammer down on a loaded chamber misfire occurring. But the thing about the piece for me is when I first saw his comments, my initial reaction was like, there's there's no way unless the gun is broken in right. some way you know this is because that's how that's how it is for most modern firearms 
you know, it's just not something that happens. It's something that people claim happens a lot, but it's not something that really happens that often. It's, you know, as we pointed out earlier, there are situations, the Remington 700, there were lawsuits over that gun. The the SIG P320 had drop fire issues uh, with the safeties, the drop safety in that gun not being up to par for what many people expect. Uh, There's got, there's, issues like that that which occur but they're less common than the claim that a gun went off on its own right right and so that that's where i was when i first read i was like this is there's no way that this is how it happened but when you think about it a little further it's not impossible what you're saying you need a lot more detail and you need to the police can also presumably it'd be pretty easy for them to tell whether or not this gun had a transfer bar in it. They just look at it. It's not complicated to be able to tell that if, whether it had uh, a transfer bar or hammer block, but, and even then you'd, you'd have to try and there's not enough detail from what he said to explain how he would have caused this kind of decocked misfire on a single action revolver. So I'm still I'm still skeptical. I think it's more likely. It sounds more likely that he just pulled the trigger. Maybe he didn't even realize that he did. Sure. So and then you also get into even if it's true, right, even if the trigger wasn't pulled and the the gun fired anyway, does that absolve him of his responsibility in this situation? Yeah. Right. An interesting point. You know, still. There's still some individual culpability possibly there, even with a, a potential malfunction. So, right, because he still pointed it right. at crew. I mean, he's there's another quote from this interview that's that's in the, these clips that ABC has released, where he says, "I would never intentionally point a gun at someone and pull the trigger at <laughs> right. them." And as I said in the piece, that sentence goes on for six words right. too long, because you shouldn't be pointing the gun at anyone, even in a movie setting. We, we, we had an armor on the show a couple of weeks ago to discuss all these points. And <clears throat> there may be some legitimate claims about actors not being the ones who should physically check the guns to make sure that they're loaded with the proper ammunition or not loaded at all, uh, as should have been the case here from what the reporting has been. But they, they certainly should, they, they certainly could have the armorer do that. In front of them so that they can themselves know and they don't have to rely on someone telling them, oh, yeah, I checked it when you weren't around. That's not acceptable. And this is this scenario is exactly why it's not acceptable. Right. This is a super rare thing that's happened, but it could have been prevented if Baldwin had not pointed the gun at crew, which you shouldn't set up a shot where crew is in the line of fire on a on a gun. It just isn't necessary. I can't think of a scenario where that would be necessary. It isn't. From what I understand, talking to armors, it's not common practice. And you shouldn't accept at face value that someone else has checked a gun before, you know, out of your sight. At the very least, have the arm. I can understand them not wanting to have the actor fiddle with the gun and mess up the the way that the gun is loaded in a specific pattern for the shot that's needed. But there's no reason the armor can't come over and visibly show the actor make them comfortable that the gun is in fact loaded properly the way that it's supposed to be so there's two points right there for why baldwin 
even if you didn't pull the trigger and this was some sort of extremely rare misfire, is still culpable for what happened. And then you go down the line, he's not the sure. only one, right? You still have the AD who handed them the gun and claimed that it was cold. You have the armorer who's responsible for the firearms on set, who uh, lo- would have been the one who loaded the gun. And then you have whoever brought lo- lo- uh, sorry, live ammunition. Yeah. There's a lot of people still to blame for this, e- even if even in a scenario, which I, again, find unlikely, but not impossible, where Baldwin didn't pull the trigger. Absolutely. But, yeah. Anyway, I wanted to move. We have another big story this week uh, that you wrote, actually, Jake, on the Ninth Circuit. There's a big ruling out of the Ninth Circuit. That's right. Yeah. You know, certainties in life are death taxes and uh, Second Amendment or a gun control law being upheld out of the Ninth Circuit. And sure enough, this (laughs) week, uh, the California's magazine ban was upheld um, after you listeners may remember if you follow this issue at all. Back in 2019, a district court judge, Roger Benitez, who's become sort of famous in Second Amendment circles, um, struck down that law and said it was unconstitutional. Um, And then a three panel, a three judge panel in the Ninth Circuit agreed with that ruling and said it was uh, upheld that that striking down. But an en banc panel at the Ninth Circuit just ruled seven to four that, no, it in fact is a minimal burden on the Second Amendment um, and therefore is allowed to be upheld. Um, something you pointed out that is important to note. Um, this isn't just your typical uh, magazine ban. Like, for example, in my state, Colorado, we have a 15 round round magazine limit. But people that folks that purchase magazines before that, that exceed that limit are allowed to keep them. Well, in California, they made it actually illegal and punishable by prison to retain possession of magazines that you lawfully purchased before this law went into effect. Um, so it's just that added step. Right. This is a. It's a confiscation. It, yeah. That's yeah. just what it is. That's what this is. You, you know, uh, yeah. And maybe they're not rounding people up and going door to door to collect these magazines. New Jersey did the same thing. Right. But this is still a confiscation. It's illegal for you to right. possess them regardless. Even if you bought them legally, you can't right. possess them. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty extreme move. There's only, I believe there's only one other state that has a law like this, Jersey, which is yeah. New Jersey, which is also being challenged and now waiting for the Supreme court to potentially act on it. Um, but yeah, you, you had the, we got two quotes here. First one is from the majority opinion, Susan Graber, Graber, <laughs> Graber. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, uh, judge. Nothing in the record suggests that the restriction imposes any more than a minimal burden on the second amendment right to keep and bear arms. Similarly, the record suggests at most a minimal burden, if any burden at all, on the right of self-defense in the home. So this is that's the court's the gist of their opinion on this on this case. And then you have a, a dissent, right? Uh, yeah. From uh, Judge Van Dyke. Uh, there's Judge some pretty Van fiery Dyke. dissents in this case. If anyone's interested, we link to the opinion, read the piece and go read the opinion, because it's very interesting to see judges on the same circuit kind of throwing shade at, at one another for their rulings. Yeah, he was, he was, he pretty, didn't pull any punches. Uh, non, <laughs> he wasn't very, uh, uh, I don't know, polite sure. in his response. This quote here from him really some, he said the majority of our court distrust gun owners and thinks the second amendment is a vestigial organ of their living constitution. He said those, dr- those views drive the circuits case law, ignoring the original meaning of the second amendment. 
So, I mean, not pulling any punches there, basically saying no. And he he had some statistics to back to be fair, whether or not you think that's uh, polite or not. He talked about how the court has a 50 and 0 record in upholding gun control laws in the Ninth Circuit. Basically, it's he, he says it's dubious to claim that they're simply doing an impartial analysis if it always ends up coming out one way. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point, right? He says uh, further. Looking at our court's cases, you would assume that any burden on the right to bear arms is presumptively permitted. I've described before how our court's version of Second Amendment, quote, heightened, uh, sorry, heightened scrutiny has no height. It is practically indistinguishable from rational basis review. So these are obviously these are legal standards that he's talking around, talking about. But basically, rational basis is the lowest level right. of scrutiny where as long as you can come up with some rational reason why the law can exist or should exist, then it's constitutional. Whereas even with heightened scrutiny, you're supposed to go beyond just that. But he's obviously accusing the court of, of not doing that. So, you know, in judge terms, that's right. pretty harsh. And it brings up a thing to say. It brings up an interesting case. point, too. I, I mentioned this in the piece, how we talked about in previous pieces, how the court um, is at least flirting with the idea of getting rid of the scrutiny balancing tests for reviewing Second Amendment cases. Um, so there's mm -hmm. a possibility that they'll set a standard in the future for other courts to follow. And because of that, most other courts around the country right now have halted Second Amendment cases because they're they're waiting for the Supreme Court's guidance because, you know, they may set a new standard that they have to take a look at. Well, not the Ninth Circuit. They went ahead and heard the case and decided it under intermediate scrutiny, which by like we've said, it looks like the court is not going to uh, favor going forward. So I think it's interesting that they went in and upheld the magazine ban under uh, a standard that is likely not going to exist in the future. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see if the Supreme Court keeps up its pace of taking gun cases on a regular basis because they've taken two of the last two years. Are they going to take more? That's what it's going to take for the lower courts to stop doing this kind of right. approach. I, I think, you know, they're, the Ninth Circuit, obviously, the majority of judges on that circuit believe this is the proper standard for review and that the government deserves a lot of deference when it comes to gun laws. Uh, so if the Supreme Court doesn't feel the same way, they're going to have to make that known probably right. repeatedly <laughs> to the right. lower courts. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, I think what happens in Bruin the gun carry case out of New York will probably determine a lot of what happens with this case moving forward. So I think that's right. It'll be interesting to watch. That's for sure. And it'll be interesting to see how California actually goes about enforcing this law too, because in New Jersey, for example, when their confiscation bill went into effect, literally no one turned in about a single magazine to the state police. So a lot of times these laws end up being more symbolic or they end up being used extremely arbitrarily right. to as tack on crimes to other more serious right. crimes. But then you, you have a situation where you have millions of people likely having a felony hanging over their head. So that's never a great scenario. Yeah. Arbitrary enforcement is never a proper solution to poor law. <laughs> right. But anyway, we will, 
end it there. I think we've got a lot of more stories over at thereload.com. If you want to check them out and see some of the exclusive posts that we have for our members, you should head over and buy a membership today. It's $10 a month or $100 a year, which gives you 12 months for the price of 10. Uh, or you can step up and move to the lifetime membership for a thousand bucks that helps support us directly. This is not an easy thing to do. Launch an independent reader funded publication dedicated to serious, sober, independent. I said independent twice there. Sorry. That's how independent <laughs> we are. Uh, <laughs> we're very independent uh, publication. So if you are interested in supporting us, that's the best way you can do it is by buying a membership and you will get exclusive access to our reporting and analysis that isn't available to the public. Most of what we do is available to the public, but not everything. We have quite a lot of dozens and dozens of pieces that are available to the public. Plus this podcast, you get this a day early if you're a member. So a lot of perks to joining and you can be a guest on the show. We have members on the show fairly regularly. That's one of my favorite segments. I, I hope to have another one coming up soon. If you are a member already and would like to be a guest, just email your reply to your Sunday newsletter, which is another exclusive benefit of membership. You get a special Sunday newsletter, the analysis newsletter that breaks down some of the biggest stories of the week. Only for reload members. So make sure you sign up today, right? That's the part where you come in and say, yes, yes sign up. That's <laughs> cute. Um, but yeah, we will see you guys again next week. Thank you.